And how are we doing, guys? How are we doing? We're doing good? It's fall. Rain is here. Kids' soccer games abound. Uh, and uh, we are in the last two weeks of this teaching series called Rebuilding. It's been good for me. Hopefully it has been good for you. We've been going through this Old Testament book called Nehemiah. And the premise is this, of this teaching series, Rebuilding, is that when we look at the brokenness in our world and in our personal life, we don't walk by it saying that is normative, who cares, we would expect that here. But rather we would move into those places, the places of brokenness in the world, and in our own life and, and believe that God actually wants to use us, fill us with the Spirit, and bring his kingdom to the places where we step. That is the premise. And so everybody that has walked in the doors today, hello, you have been invited to be a rebuilder. You may have not known that you got the invitation, but it has been extended to you just by virtue of you being here in this place. So uh, to start off, I want to ask you a rhetorical question, um, and it is this. What was your favorite childhood story? What was your favorite childhood story? For many of us, you know, we, we have a kind of the arsenal of childhood stories. Uh, one of them would be Narnia for me and my family. It's one of those things where whether you're a Jesus-following family or not, it seems like everyone kind of passes through the Narnia series at some point. And did anybody else besides me open up a wardrobe at some point in their life and look towards the back and see if there was something besides Ikea there? in the back. I remember I did. Isn't it interesting how stories uniquely have the ability to infect and invade our imagination? Unlike anything else, stories have the ability to bypass our critical thinking and inhabit our imagination and, and almost make us think that maybe it's actually true to influence how we see the world. Another example possibly would be um, horror movies. I, admittedly, I started watching horror movies way too early. If you were a child here and you're asking your parent, when can I watch that movie? Parents uh, continue to say you shouldn't and kids know you shouldn't. Uh, but I don't know why elementary school and horror movies and I met, but I did. Um, and uh, I remember watching some. And then, of course, after the movie ends, uh, I am just keenly aware that something, this, uh, something wicked this way comes. And I can't sleep. Why? Because it has invaded my imagination. Stories have this unique ability to do that, to bypass the critical thinking, the rational thought, and to invade our imagination. Stories have a plot and a point. They always communicate something about the universe that they're describing. There's always good, there's always evil, there's always a vision of what, like, truly, what it means to be, like, human, or at least what it means to be a hero. And philosophers have started using the language of story, as well as other thinkers, to describe some of the ideas that are presented to us. And maybe you've heard it described in this way of narratives. That there are narratives, just like there are childhood stories, that are being presented to us as true as the way reality is. Stories, cultural scripts, cultural narratives. 
that have an idea of what it means to be human, what truth is, where joy is to be found, what it means to be a hero. And one of these narratives, these more philosophical macro stories, you could call consumerism, very popular in our American moment. Consumerism, the premise of which is this, is that uh, making and selling more products is always a good thing, and in fact, our joy depends upon it. Anybody believed that story late night Amazon clicking last night. Admittedly, I bought a couple pair of pants. I'm like, this will make my day. Doesn't it always let you down the second they come? They don't fit right. They don't look like they, yeah. Is it just me? But this is the cultural script, the story that's presented to us, that one more product will give us purchase, that this amount of pleasure will be able to to stretch it out, and when it wears and weathers, we'll just buy another thing, because that's what it means to be human. This is the implicit story. This is the implicit narrative behind consumerism. There are others as well, of course, Uh, Like, for instance, relativism, the idea that truth doesn't have any fixed point. We would all believe that different cultures have different understandings of what is good and true, and there's gray there, but moral relativism, maybe you've heard about it, is this idea that there's really no fixed point, and so no one should assume that they are actually correct. And it makes living a little bit more complicated, doesn't it? I remember I was uh, walking with or walking up the staircase in our house with a friend of mine who's not a Jesus follower. He's a deeply philosophical friend. We, you, you know those types of friends. You have a conversation and you're like all of a sudden talking about like something that you are like, oh wow, we're already there. I'm still like, how are you? And you're like, I've read this book recently and blah, 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 blah. So this is my friend and I, I love going with him on all of that because I think, you know, I try to think widely and deeply about a number of things as well. So we're actually going up the staircase carrying my daughter's full-size mattress because at some point I guess you have to move from a twin to a full-size mattress. It's a normal stage of development, I've been told. Uh, And here I am with my friend carrying this mattress up, and as we're walking up the staircase, he says, you know, Brian, I've stopped believing in relativism. And I'm like, weird thing to bring up while I'm like, can't breathe. Um, And and I'm like, check, bookmark that, tell me more later. And after we finish with the the deal, I'm like, so tell me. And he goes, yeah, I've just realized that if all truth is relative, that means whoever is in power can invent the truth and impose it upon anyone that they have power over. And that doesn't seem like something that is workable or actually anything that's sustainable. And I was like, that's fascinating. He goes, you can't speak truth to power if truth is malleable. And I said, so tell me, what is it that you've been like seeing as most compelling? If, if this philosophical, if this narrative, if this cultural story does not have the ability to sustain uh, your, your critical thinking and how you're pressing into it, what is, what is, what's showing up there in its place? And he goes, the best thing I can see is, is, is Christian ethics. And I'm like, tell me more, because I'm a pastor, did you know? Sometimes it's not an ism, right? But it's just a personal or it's a family story about this is what it means to be a so-and-so. This is what it means to share this last name. 
We talk about money. We don't talk about money. We work hard. They don't work hard. And sometimes it's a family story that's passed on that we believe that's affected and infected our vision of reality. And so it's just important to name that there are stories that come at us, cultural stories, familial stories, stories that happen and are passed on through advertisements and through books. There are stories that we, that, that, that just like a childhood, just like Narnia, it starts to invade your imagination and infect your vision of reality. Here's why this is really important for us to name and talk about right now. Because as rebuilders, we need to find our place, not just in whatever cultural story is being sent our way, but in God's story. Because in God's story, we don't just hear about what is currently trending, but we hear about what the master architect intended for his rebuilders. And in God's story, we see it begins in a garden and it ends in a garden city. Check that out. If you've ever been interested, I mean, this is so fascinating. The Bible composed over centuries, over millennia, it begins, it has this inner coherence between beginning and end, but between the beginning and the end, between the garden and the garden city, we see there's this vision of humanity and much like many stories and isms and narratives have visions of humanity, scripture has a vision of humanity that is incredibly high that all of us bear the image of God. It doesn't matter what faith tradition you follow or what country you're from, but that you bear the image of God. In fact, this is the basis for justice in our Western world. Even though many have wandered from biblical faith, the basis for justice in our Western world is simply that all bear the image of God, so all should be treated with dignity and respect. But then it also brings an element of realism that not only do we bear the image of God, but but we've been broken by this thing called sin as it is our own volitional choice and something we inherit from our first parents. And so this story begins with this high view of humanity and this creator God, but also this realistic view of humanity. But the beautiful thing is this creator God sees fit to pursue those that would run from him to the point of his own sacrifice. And this is the story story and there's so much to mine out and it's interesting that here in Nehemiah towards the end of the book after they've put the last stone on the wall ensuring a measure of protection from would-be marauders after they've put the last stone on the wall they've expended all of their energy surely their hands still show the marks of hard work and their backs still ache in the middle of that moment what do they do they collectively join together and remind themselves of the story of the true narrative of the real way to understand and view reality. So we're gonna pick up this story, we're gonna pick up this uh, passage in Nehemiah chapter one, uh, verse, uh, verses uh, five all the way to 36. I said that right, five to 36, look alive. Anchor 10, 
30. We're going to do it. We're going there. Now, here's the thing. As we read through this passage, it might be helpful for you to think of it as story time. We're going through the whole Old Testament up to Nehemiah. And what I want you to look for are a couple things. See how this story is a story of saints and sinners. Listen for the, for the elements of saints and sinners in the story. And then also listen for how this is also not just a story of saints and sinners, but a story of a holy and loving God. So we're going to pick it up in verse 5. They're all assembled together. The leaders of Israel start sharing the story, which is really a prayer. All of Israel is participating and leaning in collectively to it. And it says, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host." And the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God. You chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You named him Abraham, and you found his heart faithful. And you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And you have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of your ancestors in Egypt, or of our ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day, and you divided the sea before them. So they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters. And by day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, and you spoke from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them uh, commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. And in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. I love that. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. And you told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hands to give them. But they are our ancestors. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. And they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By, the day, by day, the pillar of cloud did not fall to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. And for 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. 
their clothes did not wear out, and they did not be, their feet did not become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers, and they took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land, and you subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, and along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as you pleased, as they pleased. And they captured fortified cities and fertile land, and they took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate till they were full and were well nourished and they reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. And they turned their backs on your law and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed awful blasphemies. And so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. And from heaven, they heard them, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what is evil in your sight. And then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and your compassion, in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, and of which you said, the person who obeys will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. And for many years, you were patient with them. And by your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples, But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our, sis- our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. In this interesting, haunting last sentence, we are in great distress. Okay, that was a long passage. But what we see is in this impactful precipice moment of Israel when everyone is looking around and are excited for what has been completed, what do they do? They return to the story, and this story is a story of saints and of sinners, isn't it? 
It's a complex story with actually a nuanced vision of what it means to be human because oftentimes we allot who, uh, who saints and sinners are like this. They are sinners over there and we are saints over here. We think like this. They think like that. Therefore, they're messed up and we're not. And the vision actually of this passage is a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more honest, a little bit more realistic. You see, this is a description of all of God's people, but within all of God's people, there are people that are broken, that make messed up decisions, and there are people that are good, but still make messed up decisions, and they're all part of God's people. It is a story of saints and sinners, and the more granular you get, remembering passages that were um, from we just read, and remembering places they, they point to in the Old Testament, this story of saints and sinners is not just about some are saints and some are sinners, but all deal with this thing called saint-sinner syndrome at the core of who we are. Which means that, and this is fascinating to me, that this passage of scripture is actually more true to reality than most cable news outlets, right? Which it describes like the reality and complexity of human nature rather than ascribing some to be bad and others to be good. And it actually harmonizes with the New Testament letters, with the New Testament itself. I love when people say, man, I wish we could just be in the early church. And I like to say, what early church? The first Corinthian early church when they were struggling with all sorts of sexual immorality and suing each other and imposing, you know, and, and, and treating the poor like less than, than, than kind. Is that the early church you want to go back to? You see, from the beginning, this saint and sinner syndrome has been something that all God's people have always wrestled with. This past week, I was in, uh, in this uh, opportunity, I had this opportunity to go to San Diego um, and be with some other pastors, which was great because it was in San Diego, um, and also because there were some great pastors there and great leaders, and it was an honor to be invited to this this uh, essentially this kind of cohort think tank where we're talking about what it looks like to be a part of leading the church in this kind of post-Christian world where less and less people, like when, when Christianity is not something that's culturally current, what does it look like to lead God's people? It's fascinating conversations. And one of the leaders that I admire, um, that, that we at Anchor, you may not have known it, but we kind of draft off of and look towards as kind of setting a tone, he said something that was fascinating to me. Not because it was new and different, but just because it was so insightful and rung true to everything that I've experienced and I know you have as well. He said, because I have a platform and because I've written books, uh, you know, oftentimes people have an impression of me before they meet me. And when people come up to me and meet me, and I can tell they're gawking at me because they've seen me at a distance, I instantly, a wall comes up for me. Not because I don't want to be friends with them, it's because I'm realizing that they don't actually, aren't treating me as a human, they're treating me as a persona. And I, I, if they wanted me to be a persona, I can't be in relationship with them. Here's the principle, and I know most married couples know this if you have been married for over a week. <laughs> if you put somebody on the pedestal, they're going to go into the pit. No human was meant to be on a pedestal because we're all a mix of saints and sinners. 
I, I believe that most of what some are calling deconstruction uh, is really uh, precipitated by elevating some Christian leaders to sainthood status and those same Christian leaders believing the narrative and feeling bulletproof. As Loyal Karner, the British rapper, says, we're desensitized but still not bulletproof. So we have this callousness, but we still are susceptible. I think Scripture points us back to this troubling, haunting, but honest reality that we are saints and sinners. The innocent naivete that thinks some are, 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 are big, great, and awesome becomes jaded cynicism when we actually come face to face with that everybody's still human. As Luther, Martin Luther says, uh, uh, said that all are simultaneously justified and simultaneously broken. We're, we're a saint and we're a sinner. And, and Martin Luther, the reformer, didn't say that as like, go ahead then, indulge in your sinful nature. He's saying, no, honest realism, this is kind of who we are. I, I love when Phil, or Philippians 1, 6, it says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion. What does that mean? That it's not yet complete, that you will not die before you become perfect. In fact, no one probably would be willing to go up to God and be like, I was actually just as good as I am now, seeing you face to face as I was back there on earth, right? So we all have this condition. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian uh, writer, said that the boundary between good and evil doesn't go around countries or around ideologies, but through the human heart. We are saints and sinners. Again, not a license to, in, to indulge in the sinner part, but it's a realism. And here's why this is important for rebuilders to understand is because sometimes, first, first reason, sometimes it's easy for rebuilders that have seen success to believe that they're untouchable, to believe that we're better, to believe that we're elevated. Any rebuilder that has seen ty- some type of sa- success, that has seen some type of fruitfulness, starts, it's very easy to believe that story that I am elevated. Rebuilders need to be re- recalibrate to the story. And then also, rebuilders need to constantly be aware that the rebuilding work that is so significant out there, and can I just say as an aside, I hope that everyone that's been with us in this teaching series, everyone in this teaching series has things that the Spirit of God has been bringing to your heart and saying, do that rebuilding work go in that rebuilding direction, whether it's in the church and serving and helping us rebuild after this long, weird 18-month, two years, I don't know how long it's been, or out there in your families or in your workplaces or in your neighborhoods. I, I hope that every one of you has sensed the Spirit of God calling you to rebuilding work out there. But here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the flip side. The rebuilding work is not always, it's not, it's not just out there. It's always in here as well. always in here as well. The kingdom of God needs to expand in our heart and in the world. And this is what we read. 
it's it's so interesting that the rebuilders in Nehemiah's story could have self-congratulated, but instead they step back into God's story, a story of saints and sinners. But it's not just a story of saints and sinners, it's a story of a holy and loving God. If the story was just about broken people occasionally having a good moment, that would be a dooming story. But it's a story not just of saints and sinners, it's a story of a holy and loving God. In fact, if you caught it, this whole thing is a prayer. The repetition of the word you is just so, it's, it's so present, present when you start to pay attention to it. There's this constant repeating of you. It's like this refrain. And who is the you? It's God. This whole thing is a prayer saying, of, of bringing the story of Israel back to the one who was the former of the story and really the main character in the first place. There's like this repetition that I want us to take note of. You made the heavens. You give life to everything. You have kept your promise. This is describing God. You saw the suffering. You sent signs and wonders. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. You hurled their pursuers. You led them. You spoke to them. You gave them regulations and laws. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. You gave them bread. You told them to go in and take possession of the land. You did not desert them. You sustained them in the wilderness. That's a verse I want to return to. You sustained them in the wilderness. God, would you sustain us in our wilderness? You gave them kingdoms and nations. You made their children as numerous as the stars. You subdued. You gave them deliverers. And this is just a sample of like the main character of the story. This holy and loving God. It's important to note that the the Jews here did not live in this kind of like, this like cul-de-sac, this Jewish subculture where they only listened to Jewish music and wore Jewish rip-off t-shirts instead of Sprite, it said Holy Spirit, you know, but it looked like Sprite and and they, you know, they, they didn't live in this Jewish subculture. They were daily interacting with people that didn't share their vision of reality, that didn't have their story. They were much more like us than we would imagine. They were being bombarded by different narratives out there. And in fact, Nehemiah, having lived in Assyria, would be very familiar with the competing or different story uh, of the religion called Zoroastrianism, which is interestingly enough still practiced in modern-day Iran and Iraq. Zoroastrianism is a religion that King Artaxerxes would most likely have abided by, the king that gave Nehemiah all of the resources. And uh, Zoroastrianism believes that there's two equal and opposite gods, a good god and an evil god, and who knows what's going to happen. I'm so thankful that that's different from the story of Scripture, where there is one creator god, who calls his people and is holy and loving and doesn't desert them in the wilderness. I say this because as they gathered together and told the story through prayer, what they were doing is, is they, were, they, were, they were in the midst of maybe being bombarded or hearing the other stories that were on offer. Uh, they gathered together and what? They reminded themselves of the true story. This is what we do here. This is not like, oh, we should go to church because I feel guilty if I don't. 
This is when we, we step into this place. That's why we call it a gathering. We're gathering to remind ourselves of the true story as we've been bombarded for six days by other counter stories through advertisements, through conversations, through, ne- through workplace gossip, through a number of things. And some of those stories find their way into our head and our heart. And as we come back in here, we're reminded of, no, I bear the image of God, but I'm broken. I'm not left to myself because there is a good creator God that is more than a creator God. He's a redeeming God who showed up in the person of Jesus and said, it is not enough for you to be consigned to your own sin. In fact, I will take it on myself so that you might be reunited and reconciled with the holy God and have a trajectory that goes towards heaven rather than to goes towards its opposite. And we're reminded of the story and that we are called in the middle of it to be rebuilders in a world that knows lots of brokenness but not lots of healing and shalom. This is the story that we get to reclaim through song. It's the story at the end of this as you'll get to reclaim through communion, yet you'll get to reclaim through healing prayer or just prayer on the, on the edges of this area after the song. It's like, it's, this is the story we rehearse to ourselves as we step back into the world being reminded and our imaginations recaptured by the true story of the holy, loving God and us saints and sinners. And lastly, it's a story that's still being told. Did you catch that? Verses 36 to 7, how weird it is. They're like, they've done some really great stuff. And then in verses 36 and 37, it says, But see, we're slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors, so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, even as they leave exile, they find themselves still in exile. They find that the exile has worked its way into their heart. And so they're in this place where like, you know, if I was writing the story of Nehemiah, if I had the pen, if I had the Google Docs open, uh, I, sorry, Microsoft works people, I don't know, Word, I don't, whatever, Google Docs, if, if I was writing the story, uh, what would happen at, the, at this point would be like, close the curtains, call for the captions, all is well, and it is amazing, and, and, and forever and ever, amen. That's how I'd end the story. The wall got finished. Can't we just celebrate that? But here they're like, we're actually being overtaxed, and yeah, the wall has been done, but like, like we're still like, we're still in exile. One of my Old Testament professors would say that um, we, as, as Jesus followers, are, uh, are intricately middled and consequently muddled, or inextricably middled and consequently muddled. And what he meant was is that we, just like Nehemiah, are in this in-between stage where something of significance has happened, but we haven't seen everything resolve yet. We, just like the people in Nehemiah, are in the middle where we've seen Jesus has paid the price and from the cross said, it is finished, but yet we're still in a world filled with brokenness, filled with injustice, filled with stuff inside of ourselves that we don't always, always like, and we're in the middle. We're in the middle. 
What do you do when you're in the middle? What do you do when you're in the tension? Two things. When you're in the already but not yet, when you're in the middle, you do two things. You keep remembering the truth of the story. You keep remembering the truth of the story that is of a holy and loving God and his saints and sinners. You remind yourself of it daily, weekly, regularly, in a variety of ways, through conversations and prayer and scripture reading and fasting and, 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 and just silence. You daily, you moment by moment, remind yourself of the truth of the story. But second, you live responding to the truth of the story. Because if we don't live responding to the truth of the story, it will be something that is only for the head and not something that's embodied and lived out. And so in chapter 10, it makes sense that all of Israel doesn't just tell the story, but as we move from chapter 9 to chapter 10, they make some commitments. And you should read chapter 10 this week because it describes these, how we're going to live in alignment with this story. And it goes a couple different resolutions they have. The first is that they say we're going to stay away from idols. And the way they do that is we're only going to marry people that know and worship the name of Yahweh, the person of Yahweh, because we don't want our worship to be compromised. And so what is most central to us, we'll make sure it is central to those that we join with in family. And the second thing we see is, is that we're going to Sabbath. They say we're going to Sabbath, and that is more than just kind of like taking a break. It's saying God is the one who organizes and orders time, and all work is not dependent upon me, but upon the one who is truly God, and not, I am not truly God, so I can rest from my work knowing that work goes on. And then they say we will worship We will bring our energy to worship. And then they say in chapter 10 that we will also tithe and steward our financial resources. And all of this is how we live in alignment with the story. The band can come up uh, at this point. But we have this option of living in, in, in our current moment. I was talking to a man in the lobby right after our first gathering and he said, I have a testimony. And I know him, so I've, I've, I, I knew probably where this was going. He goes, God has been working in our marriage, my marriage. And my wife, for the first time in a long time, said, I love you. Some of you maybe that have been in challenging marital situations know the power of those words. I love you. And his eyes got glassy. And, and he said, and guess what? Somebody came up to me that was in a challenging marriage moment and I got to walk with him. I got to have coffee with him. I got to talk with him. I know my, my situation is still fragile, but there's a testimony. And here's the thing. This is oftentimes similar to us. We're in the middle. We have a testimony, but the story's not all the way written yet. We know that God has worked powerfully, but we know that there is still great work to be done. We know that there's still diseases out there and there's still injustice out there, but we know what God has done in us and we know he calls us to be about rebuilding work and surely he will be with us as we step into it. We know that there is great things that has happened, great things that are happening, but there is still pain. We're in the middle. And so anchor the invitation for us is 
as we, like the community that was with Nehemiah, we get to celebrate that there have been great things that have been done, but that there is still so much to be done. And we will remember the story, and we will live in alignment with the story. In two ways we remember the story is this. We'll worship together right now. We get to worship. And the second is that there's communion underneath your chairs. The temptation is to quickly open it. Just resist the temptation. If you're gluten-free, there is communion for you in the back as well. Any time during this next song, I want to encourage you to take some time and remind yourself of the true story that you're so loved that God took on your sin. You might also take advantage of the fact that we have uh, of prayer. We have people that want to pray with you on both sides and there might be something that is, that is, you've seen victory, but there's still yet victory to be had and that is an opportunity to receive prayer. God, hears our prayers. If you need healing, physically, emotionally, if you need somebody just to stand with you, that's for you. So people, community, let's remind ourselves of the true story through the taste of communion and what it means and the prayers of the people and the songs of our heart. As we go to this next song, I want to pray over us. So take a breath. Let's be mindful of the God that has already met us here. He beat us here this morning. Spirit of God, would you come? And as we say that we know you're already here, meet us in our, for some broken faith. Would you rebuild that? Spirit of God, come. Would you come in our fragile relationships? Would you come in our defeated dreams? Spirit of God, come. Would you come in our hopes and aspirations? Spirit of God, come. We need you. We need more than our, the work of our hands. We need your spirit. Would you show up in our hurting bodies, bringing healing? Would you show up in our hurting imagination and thoughts and bring healing? God, Spirit of God, come. Spirit of God, come. Spirit of God, 